Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So we're going to start out uh, a little differently with, uh, I'm going to get on my soapbox and uh, that's thanks to Georgia, who sent an email to the station last week that uh, got CC'd to me. And I thought, well, the station itself may not be ready to do a show on this, but I'm certainly ready to throw out an opinion. Tis the season, my friends, for emails and online scanners and fraud galore. But also, not just online, also from big insurance. We've entered into, yes, clutch your pearls, ladies, the perils of open enrollment season. And if you are a Medicare recipient, you can expect to be very, very heavily marketed to one or the other of the Medicare Advantage plans. Don't be fooled. When you sign up for one of these things, you're giving up a lot and you won't necessarily to be, a, a, be able to back up and back out of the deal uh, af- at the next open enrollment. Uh, this is like a, this is like getting married in a, in a country where you're not allowed to get a divorce. And according to what my patients are telling me, as of January 1st, 2024, uh, there's no option. So first of all, let's talk about the setup here. If you are a Medicare patient, you essentially have two lanes that you can stay in. Well, you can go with government-funded health care, that's Medicare, and you can per- which does not cover all of your expenses and you can purchase a Medigap supplement policy from a large number of insurance uh, providers who will be happy to sell you one i got one of the AARP policies myself but there are a lot of options out there and as i just said as of january 1st 2024 that option goes away New Medicare patients are going to have a situation. Those of you who already have Medicare and who sign up for Medicare Advantage are opting for a private sector insurance plan. And that option is like not buying your original Medicare. I had a patient who is 80 years old and decided, well, you know, need that hip surgery. Guess I'll buy Medicare and I'll sign up for Medicare. Well, if you don't sign up at 65 and start paying into it, by the time you're 80 and need an expensive operation, you have to buy into it at tens of thousands of dollars worth of cost in back, basically back premiums. So don't do that. But also... The market is shrinking, and the options are shrinking. Uh, Palo Alto Medical Foundation, Dignity Health, and Kaiser are really pushing Medicare Advantage and trying to get people to switch to the, these new plans with low, low rates and lots of perks. The problem is uh, those perks are just like the terms of your credit card. They can be changed every year. And you can expect them to be lowballing you on the premiums 
and jacking them up. They can change your premium based on age, which Medicare cannot do, and which the insurance companies that are providing Medigap policy can't do. Nothing to stop the Medicare Advantage people, and they have you locked in to Medicare Advantage. After that, you have to be in a commercial, uh, you, you have given up your right to government-funded insurance. This is what we call an oops on the part of the legislation, a loophole, something that is being massively exploited, and eventually they will plug the loophole. But in the meantime, a lot of people are going to find themselves marooned uh, in a system that where they don't like the gastroenterologist or they don't like the pulmonologist or they don't like the weight for either one of them, and they do not have an option to vote with their feet. Personally, I think the fact that the consumer can vote with their feet is one of the things that keeps the system honest, but hey, that's me. So I just wanted to put a warning out there for folks. So we're going to talk about... AI and some of the unintended consequences of moving AI into medicine. I I did a story about this a couple of months ago and outlined a lot of the companies. This is another one that's come across my desk. It's uh it's an interesting company. Uh it's called Viz AI and I'm not going to go into the the super details except to say that I think they've done a really good job at picking something that was meaningful to the founders, important to the public, and that is strokes. So you've probably heard of the brain attack or seen those ads. Speed is key with strokes, and strokes are common. They hit almost a million, 800,000 Americans a year. Each minute of delay between getting that blood clot in the brain and opening it up Each minute kills about 2 million brain cells, and many survivors are disabled and forced to move to nursing homes. Some are able to rehab, but it is a long struggle. Best not to kill those brain cells in the first place. What the Viz company does is it scans the patient's brain scan, the CT scan, and has a database that alerts, that does a kind of a pre-alert Danger will real Robinson look here first for the radiologists. Now, particularly in the evening and in a busy emergency room, people are rolling in and getting scans and there's a backup. There's a delay until the radiologist gets a chance to look at the scan. This can take up to half an hour and let's do the math on those brain cells, right? Not everyone's strokes are obvious. Sometimes it just looks like a faint Shaving a few minutes off of the time between diagnosis and calling the surgeon and prioritizing can make a very big difference. By the way, the neurosurgeons in the evenings are not living at the hospital, particularly a community hospital like ours. They're off having an actual life, maybe having dinner with their families even. And if they are on call and they are they receive a call that it is a confirmed stroke, they drop what they're doing and they head in and they try to save those brain cells. Go them. But if we can shorten the time between hitting the ER door and getting that scan, that is a valuable service to society and to the healthcare system because, hey, rehab is expensive and CT scans are cheap. Let me tell you a story. This is a 41-year-old 
uh, who was at a party, and she, her name is Jess Allison. This was in the newspapers or the press, so I uh, can use her name. And uh, she fell over and was a, unable to speak. A customer called 911. An ambulance took her to uh, Mount Sinai West. And uh, the ER doctor thought she'd had a stroke, said, said, well, let's get a CT. You can't call the neurosurgeon until you have the positive CT. And as soon as she went through the CT, the AI flagged the system. The radiologist immediately dropped what he was doing, looked at that C- CT, confirmed that she was having a stroke, and she was in the OR uh, pronto. In fact, they got to her within 12 minutes of her hitting the door, which is, you know, kudos to everyone. That's about as good as the system can work. And there's a picture here of this person, Jess, doing some rock climbing. It's really not a very steep rock. I'd say it's probably a 4.2. But hey, it's a nice picture. And it shows that she's got the use of all fours and that her face works. Generative AI is moving into different realms. And expert review of scans is just one of the things that these machines can do very well. Now, they they took a while to develop this, uh, to develop their uh, algorithm. They teamed with a hospital, uh, two hospitals, actually, in Chattanooga and Atlanta. And they cross-referenced CT images of uh, patients' brains and created, they had a database, you know, just like a a sample set. They started cross-referencing, looking for signs of early large vessel occlusion. And basically, it didn't work. There were tons of false alarms. The algorithm called too many strokes. But by working in real clinical situations, they were able to get to the product to market. And interestingly enough, the FDA is now approving these AI algorithms if they meet certain stringent tests. So there are 12 uh, algorithms, stroke, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, more about that in a little while later, uh, which is a thickening of the heart muscle that can cause sudden cardiac death, and pulmonary embolism, which is sudden blockage in the arteries that send blood to the lungs. So if we can speed up the interpretation here, it could really, really substantially uh, save lives. We also might see progress in lung cancer and cardiology. The diagnosis of lung cancer on is often missed on x-rays, but if you run these x-rays through the algorithm, they're able to spot changes that are consistent, and therefore this, is, this one's not FDA approved yet, but we might be scanning people more effectively and catching lung cancer when it's still resectable. And our progress there is has not been as great as our progress with, say, breast cancer because it's harder to spot when it's small. They're also moving into something called summarization. This doesn't require FDA approval, but what this might look like in, say, five or ten years is uh, a program that looks at the medical records of the patient and then searches the the academic literature to find information that might otherwise be missed. So, for example, a person has condition A, maybe they also have mutation B, and a new drug comes out that addresses those things. This can be brought to the treating physician as an alert 
and that might go missed for years before the two and two gets put together in that particular patient. And this is something that doesn't require FDA approval because it's not a, cl- a clinical recommendation. It's just information about a potentially relevant aspect of this person's care without making any, you should do this, leaves it still to the doctors. And personally, I would love to have someone searching the medical literature on all of my patients for the stuff that I've never heard of or don't know about or don't even remember that my patient had because some people have very, very long problem lists or it never makes it into the problem list, but it's there buried in old medical records. And those are the things that where the human-based system falls down. Here's where it gets uh, a little interesting. It's is where it's kind of a very Zen thing where uh, big pharma steps up and starts paying for something because a uh, an incentive has been created. So let me set you up for this. This company has been working on algorithms, working on x-rays, working on patient record summaries, but there's a lot of money in them that are drugs, right? And because of the 2022 legislation, it allows Medicare to, after a drug has been out for nine years, it allows Medicare to renegotiate the price of the medication. So let's suppose you've got a new drug in development and uh you look at it, you price it out. It's, you know, we're not going to make, we're not going to break even, we're not going to get our return on investment until year 11, but we've only got nine years to make our profit back here. So you want to accelerate the time for adoption and essentially find your market. And so uh, a good example of this is a, is Bristol-Myers Scribb has uh, a new drug. It's called... Uh, Mavacampton, it's uh, Camzios is its trade name. It is approved, and they spent uh, a lot of money acquiring it from the company who developed it. But it's a treatment for what's not quite an orphan disease, but it's a rare disease called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. They normally this condition can present as heart failure, it can present as weakness, and it can also be completely clinically silent until it kills you. Uh, A variation of this is the thing that kills those young, super fit athletes in high school basketball or college sports, even sometimes professional sports when they're, uh, because it's uh, idiopathic, hypertrophic, uh, septal hypertrophy, a, a subtype of this, where Essentially, the heart's beating really fast, and suddenly you just go into complete cardiac arrest. So it would be nice to identify these cases so that you could sell them your drug, which is approved for for slowing or preventing the further thickening of the heart muscles. So you want to find it early. Uh, the company has contracted basically to get this to build them an algorithm uh, that looks at EEG and echocardiograms, analyzes them, and identifies the disease in an early stage. People coming in with shortness of breath, 
you know, you're not going to immediately think as a doctor, oh, I should check for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But you are probably going to get an EKG and an echocardiogram. And if those can be, if, if the reliability of those in early diagnosis can be improved, uh, by the way, this is a low bar, the average time until diagnosis from the first echocardiogram to the actual diagnosis is five years for this disease. And the company is claiming they can get the time to diagnosis down to 64 days. Well, that's a lot of time uh, where you can make back your return on investment. And oh, let's not, let's not, let's be fair. Incidentally, you might actually save uh, a few lives. One of the problems with this use of AI is that there's a lot of competition, okay? The idea of coordinating care in a longitudinal fashion, a so-called vertical care monopoly system, is where there's gold in them thar hills. And you can see uh, electronic medical records providers are looking at that and going, hmm... Uh, you've got imaging manufacturers who are looking at that and going, hmm. And you've also got more hmms from big, uh, big dr- uh, drug stores, right? And right now you have CVS and Mal- Walmart. They're moving into trying to establish vertical monopolies and they have gotten, you know, they've bought up a pharmacy company so that, a, not a pharmacy company, excuse me, a drug supplier and distributor company, so they can uh, make some money by essentially buying the drugs from yourself, from themselves. The nursing homes all do that, by the way. And they can basically profit from the chaos and poor organization of our healthcare system. I guess I should say go them, the spirit of capitalism. But I sure like to see us rationalize what we're doing rather than Uh, room for exploitation from Wall Street, but that's just me. I had an email this afternoon that I wanted to respond to. It's just about a follow-up on what I said last week about calcium and different forms and its bioavailability. The cheapest form of calcium out there, most available in large mega packs from the big box store near you, is uh, calcium carbonate. And if you chew it well or put it in a mortar and pestle and grind it into a powder, it is reasonably well absorbed, particularly if you take it with a little acid. So that could be some vinegar on the salad or some orange juice or maybe a little lemon juice on the fish. Those those sorts of condiment helpings of such things are more than enough to improve the absorption of the powder. You could have it as, I would recommend having it during the meal rather than after the meal, as you may sort of neutralize some of your stomach acid if you do it then. Or, But you could also do it with juice, and it works perfectly well that way. Let me see. We've got a call coming in. Hello, this is Dr. Motika. You're on the air. Well, hello, Dr. Don. Hi. This, this is Jane in Pacific Grove, and I have a question about, uh, I finally am taking statins. You're t- finally taking statins. Okay, Jean, what's your question? Okay. 
The statin I got recommended to, and I've been taking now, uh, was a uh, Roussevastatin calcium 5 milligrams. So my doctor recommended the minimum, and I'm going great. And then my wife was looking up it and said, well, there may be uh, side effects from this one, and maybe I should be taking a different one. So that's my question, I guess, because I know there were two that were out there, and I got this one, and it was the most... In a moment, I thought, that's great, because I didn't want to take any drugs anyway. I'm mm-hmm. 78 years old, and this the first drug I've ever taken. Well, okay. So let's start with just the, <laughs> the dosing conundrum. So yeah. just for example, if, if drug A is dosed at 5 milligrams and mm-hmm. drug B is in the same class, let's say it's an angiotensin and converting enzyme inhibitor, the base dose for drug B might be 10 milligrams. And so the the strengths are equivalent uh, at that 5 or 10 notch. That's level 1, if you will, for the drug. And it depends on the properties of the drug, the biochemical properties that are fairly subtle. But you can have quite a lot of variation. So sometimes people will, well, I'll I'll tell them, you know, take uh, 1,000 milligrams of, a vitamin or an amino acid, they're like, a thousand milligrams, that sounds like a lot, Doc. And I'm like, well, it's a lot if you're talking about ibuprofen, uh, which is, you know, Motrin. It's not a lot if you're talking about an amino acid because you eat around 60 to 70,000 milligrams of amino acids every day. So when you put it in, Ah. when you put it that way, it doesn't sound like a very big dose. And so it depends on the substance. Getting back to your question about side effects now. The the yep. side effects are pretty much across the board a class effect. So you have things like muscle pain, uh, maybe more fatigability of the muscles, potentially something called brain fog, which is usually due to uh, having kind of marginal brain function in the first place, and then this, the statin pushes you the rest of the way. I think a lot of people have variations in their genetics that set them up for that. And what I've observed, and it's part of the lore, is that sometimes if you just stop the statin, give the person a whole bunch of CoQ10, what's a whole bunch? About 300 milligrams a day for a couple of weeks, and then restart them on the statin and keep up the CoQ10, they don't get that side effect again. So that's my usual go-to as a pre- as both a treatment and a preventative for side effects. If you're going to take this stuff, I think you need to take 300 milligrams of coenzyme Q10. Uh, this is also called ubiquinol because it's ubiquitous in the cells. It's found in all of your <laughs> mitochondria. Uh, it's, yeah, I know. You know, the, the people who did the naming like 50 years ago had a sense of humor. No, <laughs> yeah. no, no more. It's all focus groups. But, but 50 years ago, you, you, you know, they had fun and they had fun naming things. Uh, getting, getting back to side effects. So that really works very well for most observable side effects. I have a few people who get side, who get the muscle pain. No matter what we do, we call them, you know, and we check, check three or four different drugs, and they all do it. And we're like, okay, you don't get to take that drug. We'll put you on a big dose of fish oil. Or if it's me, I put them on a big dose of fish oil before I do the statins. Uh, And then if that isn't enough, I'll put them on Zedia, 
which lowers cholesterol through another mechanism, and call it good. Oh, I got you. Anyway, that, this one was, but hers was the side effect was a study she saw that said this one versus uh, rusevastin, which is the other. There's two, yeah. right? Oh, there's like and, six. Well, these two were the the major ones mm-hmm. that work. Yeah, and uh, this one had a side effect on the kidneys, which you know I don't know how you'd know if you had a side effect on the kidneys because I don't have any nothing affects me. But well, basically, you give massive doses to rats and see if their kidneys fail, uh, or you you look at people who have marginal kidney function and track them over time and on this drug versus that drug. Uh, I can't speak to the specific article. Uh, You will find, I think, that most of these potentially have a fairly substantial effect on the liver, the muscles, and the brain. And then the kidneys, uh, I'm I'm not as familiar with that, but I bet you if I went through the the package insert, it would say something like, you know, can affect the kidneys because just about anything can. There's, you know, well, there's idiosyncratic responses. So the question is, is it more with this? How good was the science on that? Is it a head-to-head study or is it just, you know, separate studies where they reported the the frequency of kidney effects? And, you know, without actually reading the methods section of the paper, there's no way I can specifically address no, I got, you know, I got the you. science. Let's go, back, let's go back to the liver thing. Yeah. Since I'm, I, I drank wine. So, oh, it, have, have my son? Have you have you stopped drinking the sacramental wine at this point in your life? I have, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my son, you were absolved. You may continue. <laughs> okay, thank you very much, Doctor John. So, your question is: uh, Are you at in danger of, of liver, liver damage? Potentially, yes, but not very, and it really depends on what other drugs you take with it and what your genetics are. So the um, the rosuvastatins and the uh, atorvastatins, which are the two, oh, that's the other yeah, one, that's yeah. The, the well, those are the you know the two sumo wrestlers in the in the stat, satin industry at the moment. Uh, and because there's so many generics, we're probably not going to see any new drugs in that category, but. There's, you know, you've got to look at the risk benefit on these. Are you getting enough benefit? Uh, typically, I monitor people's liver enzymes, but these are processed through a liver enzyme called 3A4. And this is, it's a, a variation in people's genetics. Do they have a good two good copies? Do they have one bad copy and one good copy? Or do they have no good copies? And there's backup oh, systems that, that break these <laughs> drugs down. There's always a backup system because it's con- evolutionarily desirable. And so uh, there's lots of redundancy built into your liver. But ultimately, if you're bad at breaking it down, let's say you have mm-hmm. one bad copy or two not-so-good copies, and then you take a drug that suppresses it or that monopolizes that system, you're going to get very mm-hmm. high levels. You're going to get toxicity. Uh, there, there's some rare things that, again, are probably genetic eosinophilia, excuse me, excuse me that, this sort of muscle collapse where you get uh, a ton of muscle breakdown. It's called rhabdomyolysis, and we usually see that from people who've been, like, lying on the floor for 14 hours because 
they you know were were they're found down and they lived alone or something but uh you can see it from the drug and it's just a spontaneous breakdown of the muscle and that clogs the kidneys so that uh. and that's a but that's sort of like a a secondary effect of dumping a bunch of myoglobin which is the protein that carries oxygen in your muscles it's kind of the muscular hemoglobin and you want your muscles to have lots of oxygen so they can process and do their physiology. So you've got this stuff called myoglobin. When you dump that into the circulation, it clogs up the kidneys. And so it's complicated, my friend, but I think if you have cardiovascular disease or you have hardening of the arteries or decreased pulses in your feet or any indication of problems, then you know you should be on a statin. If you are no family history, cholesterol's a little bit high, but everything else is great and you your heart checks out well on a stress test at 78, you can <laughs> make the argument that this probably won't help you very much. But yeah, well, again, again gonna, is it going to hurt you? Yes. yes. And what we're going to do, I guess, is I've been taking this for a month and a half now and we're going to have a blood test and see if it's helped my uh, cholesterol, I guess. Yeah, just make sure your cholesterol doesn't get too low, my friend. You you are making still some testosterone in your tissues, and you probably want to keep it, among other things, because it'll help you avoid diabetes, uh, which is going to shorten your life. And uh, while we're talking about statins, I should mention that uh, statins are notorious for kicking postmenopausal women into diabetes. And so yeah. I'm very careful... If I've got a postmenopausal woman with high cholesterol and she checks out fine on a stress test, I'm usually going to use other methods because there's a very there's a very clear complication that we haven't really seen statistically in men. Who knows? But which is increased risk of diabetes the year diagnosis the year after you start on a statin to fix your high cholesterol, which you know. A lot of the a lot of people were going to develop diabetes anyway, but if more of them who go on this drug do, and that's been replicated in multiple studies, you do have to be a little cautious. I don't know that that's a case for men. I don't imply it, it that it is. I don't have any science to back me up on that. Yeah, well, fortunately, my wife doesn't have that problem, but uh, uh, I did do something. I stopped drinking before I took my last blood test, and I... Uh, for about six days, and uh, my triglycerides went down to regular, normal. And he said, yeah, that's the sugar in, in the wine. That's right, and it's also uh, it's also true that when you raise your triglycerides, you lower your good yeah. cholesterol. So yeah. when the good uh, cholesterol is yeah. down, and you take that <laughs> ratio, you know, total cholesterol divided by good cholesterol, you want that number yeah. under four. If that number is okay. under four, and then, you know, it's debatable. It, it, basically, humor your doctor because he'll keep pestering you. He'll sleep better at night. And as long as you're not, sh- you know, he's a human too. And he's being indoctrinated right and left about, you know, how it's, mal- you know, like malpractice. And you'll be sued if you don't have every person that has a heart attack on a statin before they have the heart attack. It's your fault. And you'll be blamed. And that's not true either. But. Uh, you know, so sociology is complicated. I, yeah, no, it is. So when I take my next blood test, 
uh, should my uh, cholesterol have gone down because I've been taking this little thing for about a month and a half now? Yeah, it should. I, you, I can usually, I only wait two or three weeks to get another test. But what I would tell you is have them check your liver enzymes when you get that blood draw. And ah, okay. so ask, ask them to check your liver enzymes because if those have gone up, then you want to think twice. Secondly, don't let them lower your cholesterol to under 150. Because then you won't have enough of the cholesterol in your system to rebuild your cells or make hormones. Got you. And that's where the muscle loss and the testosterone and thing come, comes in. You've got to be able to build those hormones, and you build them on a skeleton, the chassis. You know, think about a car. The, the <laughs> chassis is cholesterol, and you put wheels and, you know, things on, on it. But if you don't uh-huh. have enough cholesterol, you can't build enough hormone. We we overtreat, but uh, you know that's because no one's ever really looked carefully into the downside of uh, overtreatment, and it just sells more drugs. So who would fund that? Exactly. Sorry, I'm getting cynical <laughs> in my old age. All right. Oh, no, you are. So am I. But no, I'm not getting cynical. I talk to you. Oh well, that's my fault then. I take I take full responsibility. No, no, no. That <laughs> makes me positive. Oh, good. All right. Well, thank you very much, Gene. I really appreciate your call, and um, I need to go for a station break. But feel free to call next week with another question. Bye bye. Okay. Thank you, Doctor Don. Bye bye. Wait a minute. Hark! I hear a phone. I think I shall pick up. Hello. This is uh, Doctor Don. You're on the air. Give me your name and where you're calling from. My name is Michael Keenan. And I'm in San Diego, California. Well, hello, Michael in San Diego. What yes, can I do for you, sir? Uh, in April of this year, I had a long-term ear infection, and it moved me into heart arrhythmias. Interesting. Yeah, I was... It was uh, one month of antibiotics, and that didn't do the job. And I had very stressful, you know, no, very little sleep for the, that period of time, it was 30 days, and a lot of pain, and it was an outer ear infection. Mm. And I, 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 I went through, since May of this year, I also reside, I reside in Santa Cruz. I'm, I'm down here in San Diego visiting family. And I went through extensive cardiology, Dr. Raj Singh, and nothing wrong with my heart anatomically. Good. Yeah. So mm-hmm. after many rounds of antibiotics, the ear infection was cleared up. I have this residual of arrhythmia that moves into tachycardia. Mm. And bradycardia is the most predominant, actually. My heart rate will go down to 33 and stay there for a few minutes. And then it'll it'll go up to 120. Mm. And then it'll come down to 33. And then it'll mellow out. And the the thing that I know... So what I noticed that does remedy it is if I I consume calories, especially any carbohydrates, seem to mellow it out right away, balance it for at least 30 minutes, 
very a small amount of red wine, like mm-hmm. one ounce or less. How often do so, you get these? This is a pretty much ongoing every day. So, oh, so, so every day I you'll sleep. get you'll get one of these. But throughout the day, okay. I, I I sleep fine. I wake up in the morning. I've been monitoring my heart rate and my heart rate variability for three years. So I have all this data from years ago with mm-hmm. my heart. I wake up in the morning. I have relatively low heart rate normally, like fifty-two beats per minute. I move up to, uh, so once I get out of bed, I feel okay, I have restful sleep, I stand up, and as soon as I start walking, I can feel my upper chest, like mm-hmm. almost like an allergic reaction, and I think it's parasympathetic, sympathetic, and it's like reacting in my bronchioles, and then... I'll take my heart rate, and it'll be starting to bounce up and down. Mm. Okay. So first first things, when Dr. Singh's monitored you, did he did he do a uh, an event monitor where you wore a patch on your chest for a while for maybe five days or two weeks? Right. I had a one-week monitor. Okay. And was, were the tachycardias supra- Ventricular or ventricular? I'm betting on the first, but I need to know the answer. Okay, so so his his summation with me was that I had PDCs, premature ventricular mm-hmm. contractions, and that I had bradycardia, and that my heart was really in good shape after I did my stress. My you know I did a mm-hmm. I did you know I did a, a ultrasound and nothing conclusive from there. And then I did a stress ultrasound. Right. Good. Yeah, you had the you had the full workup. More, but the, I had the I, work. yeah. So so if if the if it's sinus tachycardia, so when your when your heart's beating fast, if it's sinus tachycardia, it's coming from a place called the sinus node, which is your normal pacemaker, the one that's supposed to work. So there's a couple of diagnoses that come to mind. Uh, immediately, and so I'm going to share those with you. But I'm not diagnosing you on the air. I'm telling you read about these and fo- and uh, follow up. And so, uh, so, so the um, the first one that I'm just going to mention, and these are in, in no particular order, is something called paroxysmal atrial uh, tachycardia or supraventricular tachycardia. So paroxysm supraventricular as a search will turn it up. And in this situation, your pacemaker is being hijacked by a short circuit in your heart. Sometimes I, I, uh, some antibiotics and it, it will have what's called ototoxicity. Uh, and they can also have, they can also have neurotoxicity and that could, it's very rare, but it could potentially have damaged a part of your heart and caused you to develop the short circuit. I that will be obvious on that on that monitoring scan. Something that you said just now uh about how you experience it made me think, "Oh, that sounds an awful lot like posterior uh, like pa- like postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome." Okay. So what happens with this? is that when you change your position from 
lying down to standing up or sitting uh, sitting down to standing up, it triggers a large outflow of sympathetic signal to the heart, and it speeds up the heart rate as if as if you'd just been startled or if right. you had been exercising. And it's it's the diagnosis of that is made by something called tilt table testing. And, yeah, I read about that. Yeah, and and we are seeing a ton of that in the aftermath of COVID. And it doesn't have to be right after you have COVID, and it doesn't have to be a clinical case where a person gets really sick. Uh, but it seems like the virus can screw up the nervous system. And we're we're definitely now seeing a whole bunch of POTS, and it's become the, the awareness in the medical circles of this is much broader than it used to be because COVID so has given it, us a whole bunch of cases and everybody has seen a case now. And that's really how it gets into your brain. So this is considered, that's considered POTS, what you just described. POTS, that's what POTS is. And the diagnosis okay. is done with a, a tilt table and you may have that. And it could give you this sort of PVCs and bradycardia, but everybody has PVCs. The other thing that stands up to me is that if I sleep deprive a person for a month and give them pain, and which gives them adrenaline, I'm going to co- create a very irritable heart that usually yep. reverses when you fix the sleep. So, uh, but that can, you know, that that could be a thing. And the other thing I want to think about is, you know, your blood sugar and whether that could be triggering. Uh, this yeah. syndrome. So you can buy a coupon on good, uh, you can get a coupon from GoodRx and you can buy a continuous glucose monitor for like 60 bucks and you slap that puppy on your arm and download the app and you monitor your symptoms. And every time you get your tachycardia, you pull out your phone and you look at your blood sugar and you look to see whether you've, you, you've got a low blood sugar that's triggering this. The, and that could, so that's a more that that's another diagnosis that you know if you go see a cardiologist they're going to check you for cardiology things but they are not necessarily going to check you for POTS or even think about POTS and they're not going to check you for hypoglycemia because it takes a generalist who's like myself or any other well trained primary care doctor or general internist. You know, we are the people who juggle all these possibilities in our head when we're confronted with a set of symptoms. And then we decide, oh, this sounds like send to the pulmonologist, send to the cardiologist, or take care of it myself. That's kind of my decision tree, uh, fill in the blank on the specialist. But that's, uh, cognitively, it's a detective story here, what you're presenting me with. So you're giving oh, me the yeah. setup for uh, the setup for a detective story. So now what we have to do is examine more carefully the fit on these symptoms and maybe eliminate some of the suspects uh, like the tilt like the tilt table test. Is tilt table testing available in San Cruz? Uh, to my knowledge, no. I usually send people up to Stanford because they see a lot of POTS and they actually have an okay. autonomic dysreflexia clinic where they're training specialists and they've got attendings who specialize in this. And uh, there may be someone down, there may be someone within, in Monterey County. There may be even maybe someone who's, who's doing this in Santa Cruz County now, but I haven't, 
you know, I don't have an encyclopedia of okay, who's so, got what equipment. Okay, so this is very helpful. I want to fill in what the event was. Mm-hmm. I was flying. I, I contracted the ear infection in Hawaii. I was flying back to Santa Cruz in minute flight over the Pacific. I had a good meal on the flight. I was doing fine. I was loaded up on ibuprofen. I'd been on ibuprofen for about two, at least two weeks steady just to control the pain. And I was on antibiotics at the time. And I ate a meal on the plane. And I drank half a cup of coffee on the plane. And my heart freaked out. Well, coffee is a cardiac stimulant, and if you and you were sleep deprived, so if yeah. I was trying to give you a whole bunch of PVCs, I would have kept yeah. you up for two weeks, put you into pain, and then given you coffee. Well, and that, would, that was the trigger, right? But trigger it, point. right? But now it's now you're sleeping, right? Right, and then here's another addition: I contracted COVID twice mm. in Hawaii. They were, the first one was in January of 2022. Mm-hmm. The second one was in April of 2022. And then a year later, I contract this ear infection, and then the heart goes down. So, yep, it's plausible. The delay can be, the, the delay could be a year, and you had okay. substantial triggers. Once you get one of these loops going in your heart, you, 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 you've, you're a student of heart rate variability. So you, underst- you understand right. that there's a, a sort of symphonic dance between the brain, the vagus nerve, the, uh, the adrenal glands, the adrenaline, the thoughts. The, all of this stuff is, uh, has, has its own innate rhythm, and it can get dysregulated. And so uh, we are still... COVID has just provided us with a template that a, a, another great mystery that needs to be solved. And how the heck does this happen? That it happens is not in dispute. Uh, so now we get to study the phenomenon. And one of the things we're seeing is the, there's a problem with confirmation bias because how many people have not had COVID at this point? Uh, I'll tell you know, it, so, so it, it doesn't help to check the COVID box. It's, you know, it's kind of like, yes, have you ever drank alcohol in your life? You check the box. And you know, how many people aren't yeah. going to check the box? Okay. So, so, so here's, you get the tilt table test. You'll get the tilt. I just want to qualify. I'm 72 years old. Okay. I'm in like really good condition. I'm really in really good shape. Yeah, that's why you have bradycardia. <laughs> right. Right. Both of my parents had heart disease. And my, my, my mother did have low heart rate. Mm-hmm. Well, you may develop, you may be developing, there's another thing to look up, sick sinus syndrome, which is the most common reason that people have pacemakers inserted. Yeah. Uh, the other one is having a heart attack that gets the pacemaker, uh, which does happen, but you didn't have that. The uh, sick sinus syndrome is basically an aging sinus uh, yeah. node that just basically can't hold it together anymore, and those people will have generally, well, you're 70, you said you're in your 70s, so you remember cars that needed tune-ups. And so if right. you're sitting at the red light, 
and you've got your foot on the brake and the car starts to stutter and cough and then it revs up really fast and you haven't touched the accelerator. That's the, uh, the di- what did they call that thing that you have to, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the name of it. They, but uh, there's a little device, there, there's a little timing motor and there's a thing that is supposed to, to keep, that you have to adjust the, the timing right. so that the thing has the right revolutions per per minute right. and uh, all distributor. Thing, distributor. No, distributor. That's it. That's right. The thing that sends the electricity to the spark plugs. So, so yeah. that's pretty much my situation. I can be sitting totally relaxed and that's when my heart decides to do its wandering up and down. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah. I think if, I, if there's any mental anxiety, it triggers it immediately. Mm-hmm. Well, that sort of makes if sense the, because the adrenaline goes into your bloodstream. Oh yeah, it's very advanced. If I if I'm startled or I have to move quickly, uh, it'll throw me into an episode. Yeah. Well, sir, I think you've got you've got work to do. I've uh, a little bit of uh, background reading, and then do you know anyone? So I'm I'm obviously I'm a Medicare person. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's okay. And do you do you know of any other cardiologists, electrocardiologists here? In 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 Santa Cruz area, no. We don't have we don't have that level of of uh, of specialty training, but you won't have any trouble getting in to with uh, getting in with Medicare. Uh, My start might be just seeking out a. uh, Let's see. I'm trying to think. Uh, My GP is Gail DeCleese. Yeah, part of a dignity program. You might just ask her for a uh, a, a further referral to someone yeah. within their system who could, uh, who, would, um, yeah, yeah, who would be able to to do it. Uh, I'm not, you know, for sick sinus. I think that that we should have turned that up with the with the event monitor. But you might just need another two week event monitor, where because uh, well, that'll usually uh, just show right up. We see it. I have that whole report. I asked. I I had I had several appointments with Doctor Singh. He's the busiest MD I've ever visited. He he was very caring, but he looked at me and he said, "You know as much about this stuff as I do because I was doing all this homework on mm-hmm. it." Yeah. And he basically he basically he said to me at the end last appointment was, "You've got a healthy heart. You've got PVCs, and you've got." bradycardia, if your heart rate stays below 40, he said you're a candidate for a pacemaker. That was his summation. Get a second opinion. It's as simple as that. And uh, yeah. you could you could ask for a referral to Stanford Cardiology if you want to get really okay. fancy, or you could just go, uh, there's so many cardiologists in Monterey, you just head, head down to Monterey and not have to brave Highway 17 in the winter. Do you have any suggestions for people down there? I'm sorry, I don't really know the cardiology community that well, so I okay. can't. Okay. I can't. And besides, if, even if I did, I would feel a little weird giving out uh, specific recommendations for uh, sure. something like that right. on the air. Uh, I'm going to okay, sign so off now, you, but thank you for the call. Thank you very much. Bye bye. And we've got time for just one quick uh, email. This from Liz in Pacific Grove. 
Uh, at age 78, I am now having what I presume to be osteoarthritis. I wanted to ask you to talk a bit about what one should be doing to keep the condition under control. Um, I tuned in late today, so I'm keeping it simple. Thanks in advance for all you do. Okay, Liz in Pacific Grove. In uh, two and a half minutes, let me see what I can do. First of all, uh, don't stop exercising, but do wear do exercise in padded shoes. Don't run on cement. Try to run on a padded track. Walking is good for arthritis. Keep the joint moving. I'm a great fan of uh, for larger joint arthritis, particularly like hip and uh, knee. I'm a great fan of uh, glucosamine sulfate, which acts as a lubricant. Uh, it is available with or without the chondroitin sulfate. I'm the, the the research is better on the glucosamine, but I don't have a problem. You can often find those two combined with MSM as a product for arthritis. And you need about 1,500 milligrams of glucosamine sulfate daily. Uh, there are good studies that show that that slows the progression of arthritis. In terms of symptom control, I would definitely discourage the use of long-term regular ibuprofen or other non-steroidals. Uh, Tylenol is good for pain, but it's not an anti-inflammatory. I tell all of my arthritis patients to take high doses of fish oil, which you maybe already are taking, but you can take up to 4,000 milligrams a day of fish oil unless you're on blood thinners for another reason. Uh, you would need to stop that a couple of weeks before any surgical procedures, because, but it is uh, a very effective anti-inflammatory at that level. You can also use... Uh, tart cherry juice, which oddly enough does seem to have uh, a real strong anti-arthritic effect. I want to put in a word for CBD. Uh, you can make uh, tea with a pot bud, a uh, marijuana bud. If you dip it in hot water and make a tea, you can also flavor it uh, as well. That can work really well and it won't get you high. CBD is ex is expensive. Crappy pot is now actually quite cheap. And uh, so you might consider trying the, the flower or bud tea. Gotta go, but I'll be back next week to take more of your questions. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at Ask Dr. Dawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.